Good morning, everyone. Today we're going to read um, a lot of verses, but first let's begin with Acts 16, 11 through 15. And he goes, um, so setting sail for Tros, as we made, sorry, we made a direct voyage, voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Nepalus, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and, and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And so on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place for prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. On who heard, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she, has, she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, for your word. We're thankful that it isn't just uh, an ancient book, but it's a book that uh, you promise your spirit works through. So we pray that your spirit would work through your word this morning to change our hearts, to change our lives, our thinking, our emotions, our will, all the things about us, Father. May you change our hearts because we've encountered you here this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. 
Amen. Um, A lot of you know um, my oldest son, Will, and the thing you need to know about Will is that Will loves to read. He reads all the time, and the challenge for us as parents is to try to find uh, books for him that he has not read because he reads so much of them. So uh, the other day I made a suggestion to him that that he read a book that I loved when I was a kid. It was a book uh, by a man named Norton Juster, and it was called The Phantom Tollbooth. It was really popular when I was a kid, so I suggested that he read it. Now, I didn't remember a thing about this book, The Phantom Tollbooth, but we went out and we found it, and we started reading it together. And uh, I started reading to him the first chapter, and this is how the book starts. I wanted to read you the first paragraph. It says this. It said, There once was a boy named Milo who didn't know what to do with himself. Not just sometimes, but always. When he was in school, he he longed to be out, and when he was out, he longed to be in. On the way, he thought about coming home, and coming home, he thought about going. Where he was, he wished he were somewhere else, and when he got there, he wondered why he'd bothered. Nothing really interested him, least of all, all the things that should have. Now, they say that kids' books are probably the best books for even adults to read, right? And when I read that, I was reminded of my own heart. I was struck by how my life and my heart even resembles the life and heart of this character Milo in this story. And I thought about how so many people in our society resemble the way Milo thinks too. Flannery O'Connor wrote this. She said, at its worst, ours is an age that has domesticated despair and learned to live very happily with it. Now, I don't know about you, but I know my own heart, and I know that so often contentment is a very hard thing for me to come by personally. And I think it's very true for us culturally. We have a hard time finding contentment. And what happens is our discontent ends up leading to kind of a gnawing sense of boredom that we all have. Now, I know that may sound strange because we live in a society that's probably busier than every, any other society in all of history. Yet, despite all our busyness, there's a gnawing boredom that exists in our hearts. And in the end, we end up missing out on what matters most in life because of this. This is why I love this book of Acts that we've been looking at. The book of Acts tells the story of Jesus' followers, their first steps that they took after Jesus ascended back into heaven. It tells us what they did once Jesus returned back into heaven. And what it does is it records for us this pretty cool urban church planting movement that happened in the first century world. And you read about how the gospel connects with the narratives of all these different cities all throughout the ancient world as Jesus' followers took this gospel message to all of these different cities. But more than anything, it shows us about a people who found contentment and peace in the person of Jesus Christ. 
But that contentment and peace wasn't something they just kept for themselves, but it was something that propelled and exploded them into mission, canceling out any sort of boredom they may feel. It propelled them into mission as people who have discovered what truly matters in life. And this week we look at the gospel's work in an ancient city called Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was in the the region of Macedonia. Uh, It was really in what is modern day Greece nowadays. And uh, Philippi was really the first European city that uh, the Apostle Paul took the message of the gospel to on his second missionary journey. And Luke, who is the author of this book of Acts, uh, tells us about what the gospel did in the city of Philippi. But instead of giving us a great big overview about what the gospel did in this city, instead what he does is he gives us little snapshots of what the gospel did in three individual lives in the city of Philippi. And they were, they're, they're stories I want to look at this morning, and they're all incredibly different stories, but no less miraculous in each one of the lives of the people Luke tells us about. The first was a young woman who was named Lydia. And we read about Lydia's story in verses 11 to 15. You see, whenever Paul went to one of these ancient cities, one of the first things that he would do is he would try to find the Jewish synagogue in that particular city. That was the place where he first wanted to begin communicating the message of the gospel. But the problem with Philippi is there was no Jewish synagogue in that city. In order for a city to have a Jewish synagogue, they had to have a quorum of 10 men who could help uh, galvanize together and create the synagogue. But there wasn't enough men in the city of Philippi to start Uh, to start this synagogue. So the women did what all good women do. They took matters into their own hands. And what the passage tells us is they went to uh, the river. They went to a place uh, by the river and they started a prayer group uh, at the river. This would be a time where the women of the city would gather together. They'd read uh, the scriptures together. They'd pray together and they'd be in community with one another. And Paul hears about this group of women that are gathered by the river. So he and his traveling companions immediately go to this group and begin sharing the message of the gospel with them. And while he was there, he met a woman named Lydia. Now, Lydia is probably the ancient version of a young, urban, professional woman in in this ancient world. She wasn't married, though it seems like she seemed to have a a family. We don't know her full story, but we we do know that she was a businesswoman. She she was from Thyatira, and she imported the goods of Thyatira into the Macedonian region. She was very successful at what she did, and if you read the bullet between the lines, you discover that she was a pretty wealthy woman. She'd done great things for herself, being very, profes- uh, being very uh, successful in her profession. But the passage tells us that when she met Paul, and when she interacted with the message of the gospel, something happened in her life. It says in verse 14, "...the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul." And after she was baptized, 
and her household as well. The passage then goes on to tell us that because Lydia was wealthy, she had a really big house. And because she had a really big house and her life was changed by this message of the gospel, she said, every one of you, all of Paul and all of his companions are now going to come live at my house. And what we learn is that Lydia's house becomes the base of operation for the gospel to move in the city of Philippi. You see, her story is the story of a wealthy urbanite whose heart was changed by the message of the gospel. But she could not be any more different than the next character that Luke tells us about in our passage. Because then Luke next tells us about the story of a very young slave girl. And we read about her story in verses 16 to 24. The passage tells us that when Paul was was traveling all around Philippi sharing the gospel message, he was followed by this young slave girl. And the passage tells us that she was pretty disruptive. She was a disruptive character. She kept shouting all sorts of things wherever Paul and his companions went, and she continued to follow them. She continued to persist in following them and shouting out these things. Our passage tells us that that she was a fortune teller in this city and that her masters, her slave masters, had used uh, her fortune telling abilities to bring them all sorts of income. She would most likely have uh, been very poor herself, having no means to herself. And a female slave in her position would be considered to have very little value in the ancient world. When you think about society as kind of rungs of, of ladders, she would have been on the very bottom of the social ladder in the city of Philippi. What we learn from our passage is that her fortune telling stemmed from the fact that she had been possessed by demons and that she was a victim of all sorts of exploitation because of her situation. Her masters had used her unfortunate situation in order to line their own pockets and create a lot of income for themselves. But the story tells us in verse 18 that she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. You see, this young girl, when she met Paul, she experienced really two sorts of freedom. She experienced the the freedom of her sins. She experienced the freedom of her own spiritual oppression due to her sins because that day she experienced the forgiveness that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. But she also experienced a different kind of freedom. She experienced a freedom from her circumstantial oppression as well. Because the platform for her exploitation was now removed and now she could truly be freed. And what you consistently see all throughout the scriptures is that often our spiritual oppression is connected to all sorts of circumstantial oppression that we feel in our lives. And yet in her case, the gospel freed her from both. 
But just because this good thing happened to her doesn't mean that everyone in our story was happy about it. The masters of this slave girl were not particularly happy by what Paul had done. They're not happy that now their income uh, is now being disrupted. In fact, they were quite upset about it, so they wanted to get back at Paul. So they began to go around Philippi and spread all sorts of rumors about Paul and his companions. And what they end up doing is they whip up the, the city into all sorts of a frenzy actually against Paul. One of the things you'll notice uh, in the last half of, of Acts, the book of Acts is that pretty much every city Paul goes to, a riot ensues. And the same thing happens in the city of Philippi. A riot ensues because of Paul's presence. And the passage tells us that the crowd attacks Paul and all of his companions. It says in verse 22, The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. You see, Paul and his companions are grabbed by this crowd. They are, they are stripped naked before the crowd. They are beaten with all sorts of rods. And our passage tells us that they were actually flogged because of what they had done. In the New Testament, the process of flogging was particularly gruesome. They would take long strips of, of leather and they would create uh, whips with multiple ends to them out of leather. And at the very ends of these whips, they would put little bone fragments in these whips. And they would take these whips and they would actually whip the back of the prisoners that they had gathered. They would whip them 39 times. Now, why 39? Because they believed that to whip someone 40 times would actually take their lives. So they would whip them short of their lives. Every time one of these whips would go across their backs, it would dig into their backs and pull out the skin. It was an incredibly gruesome way to be punished in the Roman system. And that's exactly what happens to Paul and all of his companions. They are stripped naked, they are flogged, they are beaten, and then they are put in the stocks. They are actually locked into the inner prison because of spreading the message of the gospel. As I mentioned before, we, we referenced discontent earlier in our story. We talked about how we are often like Milo. We struggle with uh, contentment, wishing that we were often somewhere different in our lives, wishing we were somewhere else. Well, Paul, in this story, had every right to wish that he was somewhere else. He is locked in the stocks, he'd been bloodied, he'd been beaten in this strange city. But instead of being discontented about his situation, the passage says this, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I'm sure the prisoners in this midnight kind of praise and prayer session were looking at Paul and Silas and his companions and scratching their head, wondering who could these people be that in this horrible situation, they are singing and praying and praising God. But the other the passage tells us that the prisoners were not the only ones observing Paul in this circumstance. 
Luke tells us that there was a jailer who was there too, who was observing all these things happening and whose life was about to change dramatically as well. And we read about the jailer's story in verses 25 to 34. Our passage tells us that miraculously at midnight there is an earthquake that comes. And the earthquake shakes the whole prison and it releases Paul and the other prisoners from the stocks in which they are imprisoned in. The earthquake opens up all of the prison doors, making it possible for all of them to escape. And in the middle of all this, the jailer wakes up and he discovers that the prison has now been opened and he launches into a panic. And here is why in the Roman system, if a jailer was unsuccessful in his profession, if his prisoners were able to escape from that prison, then that jailer himself would be subject to the punishment that those prisoners deserved. So that when this jailer wakes up and realizes the prison has been opened, he realizes that he is about to face the punishment that his prisoners were facing. So he realizes death is imminent for him. Once his superiors find out what has happened, death is imminent for him. So he decides to take matters into his own hand. He decides to grab his sword and he is about to take his very own life. And then Paul intercedes. He says, don't kill yourself. We are here. We are still here. And the man looks at Paul and he says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? Now, the reality is this translation might not be as accurate. He was probably saying, Paul, what am I supposed to do to get out of the mess that I am in in this very moment? What must I do? And Paul says in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your household. You see, the jailer wanted to be saved from his messy physical situation. But Paul was introducing him to Jesus, the only one that could truly save him from his messy spiritual circumstance. You see, Paul interceded to save this man from his physical death, but the gospel tells us that Jesus intercedes to save us from a spiritual death. He took the executioner's blow so that you and I could be saved from it. And when we believe in his name, we experience spiritual life in a way that we can find in no other source. You see, that jailer believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in that moment, and he and his household was saved, the passage tells us. It tells us that immediately he takes Paul and he begins to clean up his wounds of both Paul and his companions. And then it tells us that in that very prison well, he and his family are baptized. And afterwards, they go back to their home and they have this middle of the night, midnight celebration because this jailer's spiritual life has been saved in Jesus Christ. So our passage tells us about a wealthy, young, urbanite woman. It tells us about a young slave girl 
And it tells us about a jailer, all who find life in the person of Jesus Christ. As many of you know, uh, we are a church plant that started just about a year and a half ago uh, and that we actually came out of uh, a sending church that exists out in Howard County. And uh, the story of that sending church is a really interesting one. It's a, it's a church that's been around for a really long time. It actually started in 1895. And uh, it started with a bunch of women, of, I think it was about five women, who decided in 1895 that they wanted to start a new church. So they began to, to gather together on the second floor of a dry cleaners in East Baltimore. And they began to think and pray about what it might be to, to start a church. And I laugh about that because about two and a half years ago, a very similar thing happened in the life of City Church. We gathered a bunch of people together. We sat around in our living room and we began to dream about what it would look like for God to establish a new church here in Roland Park. I always think of that when I read this passage in Philippi because I can't help but think about this start of the church in Philippi. They must have gathered together probably in Lydia's living room And they began to walk around introducing one another. It started with Lydia, who told her story about being a wealthy, upper-class woman and about how she met Jesus at, at a riverside when Paul came and shared the gospel message to her. As they go around the room, it would next come to this young slave girl, this young slave girl who was on the lowest rung of society, now sitting in a wealthy woman's living room. And she would tell her story about how Jesus saved her from demon possession and from being in a situation of circumstantial oppression. Next, it would go around the room to the Roman jailer who was sitting there, who would begin to to tell the story about how he was about to commit suicide. He was about to take his own life. And then the Apostle Paul interceded uh, on his behalf and not only saved his life physically, but also saved his life spiritually. They would share each and every one of their individual stories and talk about how Jesus brought them life. You see, these people could not have been more different. They were different economically. They were different morally. They were different socially. They were different psychologically. Yet the gospel touched each and every one of them uniquely and used each and every one of them to start a movement of the gospel in the city of Philippi. It was such a special and unique church that when Paul later writes a letter back to the church at Philippi, his letter is dripping with affection, not only at the life, but also the joy that he sees in this church in Philippi. You know, if you're here this morning, you may look or feel like one of the characters in this story. Maybe you look like Lydia. You've been wealthy, you're wealthy, you've been successful in your life, you've been uh, very prosperous economically, but at the same time, you feel like you're still looking for something in your life. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you feel like that young slave girl. You feel trapped by some sort of 
circumstantial oppression that you've experienced or are experienced in your life. Or maybe you feel like the jailer. Maybe you feel like you're, you're trapped in a situation in your life that you just can't feel like you can escape. Know that the gospel was the answer to these people and it is also the answer to whatever place you find yourself in your life. Because ultimately it is the good news that brings about life. But maybe you're here this morning and and you've already discovered that. You've already discovered life in Jesus Christ and what it means to know him. Know that when you do discover that for yourself, that God calls you to take that even a next step. He calls you to not only experience life, but to be a carrier of that message of life to all the people you interact with and you rub shoulders with. You know, the the modern kind of landscape of evangelicalism and Christianity, I think, has lapsed into something that's really unhealthy. And many people have called it kind of a, a divide between what is the secular and what is the sacred. And how it plays out is that we now often pay pastors and missionaries to be the professional carriers of the gospel in our world And the rest of us are relegated to quote-unquote secular work that exists out there in the world. I really believe this is an incredibly unhealthy divide, and I don't think you can see it anywhere in the scriptures. There's no evidence of that divide anywhere in the scriptures. There's a category in the missions world that's called a tent-making missionary. Maybe if you've been in church for a long time, you've heard that term. And that's a term for someone who decides to be a missionary and then moves to a different culture and gets a regular job in order to support the missionary work that they are about to engage in. Well, Richard Lovelace, who uh, is one of my favorite, has become one of my most uh, favorite authors, said this. He said, the reality is that every Christian ultimately is a tent-making missionary. And what he meant by that is this. He meant that every job, every vocation, every calling that you and I have, whether it's professionally, whether it's personally, whether it's being a friend, whether it's being a family member, every calling and vocation that we have is part of our greater calling, our greater mission to spread the words of life to spread the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the call of not just pastors, of not just missionaries, of not just the professionals. It is the call of every ordinary, everyday believer in Jesus Christ to not only be one who receives the message of life, but to be that carrier of that message to everyone that we rub shoulders with. Let's pray.